0: Uh, Luke 17 is where we're going to be today, and uh, we're going to be looking at four essentials of the Christian life. Essentials. When you talk about essentials... it's a a critical thing, right? these These are things Jesus here, we're gonna find he's on his way to Jerusalem, he's pouring in his disciples and he's preparing them for when he's gonna pass the baton of ministry to them. And so this is an issue where now he's just picking those essential things that he wants them to get, that he wants to get into them. The dictionary defines essentials this way. It says an essential is the fundamental elements of something um, that are absolutely necessary. Those elements that are absolutely necessary, fundamentally, that's what an essential is. And so um, we take a walk with this and we go, okay, let's think about, you know, what are the essentials in our life? Sometimes we, there are things that are, we think that are essentials, uh, but they're really not essentials, you know? Hey, that, that's really a need that I have. No, that's a neat that you have, but it's not a need, you know? Um, but there are things that are, that, are, that are critically essential. I had a buddy, he was ministering in Indonesia. Indonesia is the largest archipelago in, uh, in the world. It's, uh, it's an island nation made up of over 10,000 islands. And it's beautiful. Southeast Asia, it's, it's a tropical setting. Um, but the food is not so beautiful. It's, it's more like an episode of Fear Factor when you're there. And, uh, and so... He thought that he heard his host, while he was there, say that they were going to be having hot dogs that night. And uh, and so he was all excited. He's like, finally, I'm going to have something that I'm going to enjoy. And I'm not going to have to choke it down. Well, when dinner time came, he found out that he was having hot dog. Right? Now, dog meat is not an essential ingredient of hot dogs. I'll just say that. You go, hey, PT, have you read the ingredients of hot dogs? Like, maybe dog meat's a step up. You know, if you knew what was actually in your hot dog, I'm like, la, 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 I like my Der Wiener schnitzel chili dog, I don't want to hear about it, <clears throat> clearly. Um, so, but, but it's essential. We got to know what are those essentials. And so what's happening here, in Luke 17, Jesus is going to address four essentials of the Christian life four essentials of the Christian life. We're going to cover the essential of forgiveness, the essential of faithfulness, the essential of thankfulness, and the essential of preparedness. And so Jesus is going to to share all of these things. Uh, I'll just tell you today, all we have time to deal with is the first one. We'll get to the other ones later uh, in the coming weeks. But today, it's all about the essential of forgiveness. The essential of forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is one of those topics when you teach in the church, it is a target-rich environment, right? Here's why. Because just as it's been said of motorcycle riders that there's two types of motorcycle riders, those that have been down and those that are going down. Uh, And when it comes to the issue of forgiveness, here's what I know. That right now today, there are many of you who are dealing with with an issue of anger and bitterness and resentment and forgiveness that's indicated in your life. You have some sort of a fractured relationship. I won't ask for a show of hands, but many of you this morning are in that category. And as well, by God's grace, there are are many in the category today to where you go, hey, I'm good, my relationships are good, I'm not dealing with anger and bitterness and resentment yet, and I say, okay, cool, but it's 929, on Sunday morning, you know, and maybe before the end of the day, you're going to have to deal with this issue. It's ironic. I was putting the message together this week, getting ready to come teach on forgiveness, and Brenda and I have this this falling out. We have this disagreement, and now God's like, okay, are you going to practice what you preach, P.D.? Is this, is this how it's going to go down? You know, and uh, it's like, yeah, I guess I do, you know. And, and so it's a lot easier to preach on forgiveness than it is to actually live out the things that we are, we're going to learn, but uh, so critically important. So the essential of forgiveness, Luke 17, verse 1. Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come But woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Now, right there, verse 1. It is impossible that no offenses should come. If you're given to taking notes, you might want to circle that word. Nearby, you could write this. You could write, trigger of a trap. Because that's what the word offense is in. It is. In the Greek, it's scandalon, And a um is a bent stick that is used as the trigger on a trap. If you've ever watched the Discovery Channel, uh, and you, you see there that uh, it, on the episode Swamp People, how many of you have seen Swamp People on Discovery Channel? A couple of you are like, okay, I'll admit to that. I do. It's a guilty pleasure. Um, so what do they do? They take a tree, and they bend it over, and they... They set it there in such a way that it's got a rope on it, it's got a hook on it, and some bait on it, and that's that is a scandalon. That's the word in the Greek, and it's a trigger of a trap to catch alligators. As well, this same word uh, scandalon not only can can it refer to um, a bent stick or a trigger of a trap, it can also refer to a stumbling block. A stumbling block. Now. Jesus uses this word to illustrate a basic truth here. He says it's impossible that there's not going to be a stumbling block, or it's impossible that there's not going to be these these traps that are set. Um, Woe to you if you're the one that sets the trap, basically. Woe to you if you're the one who sets the stumbling block in place. And Jesus is illustrating this basic truth that in this world, in life, there are scandalons. They're inevitable. There, there are scandalons that trip us up, there are scandalons that trigger us to anger, and the Bible uses this word scandalon a lot. Sometimes it's used in a good sense. You see it in, in uh, Romans 9, 1 Corinthians 1, in Galatians chapter 5, uh, all of these areas of text use the word scandalon in a positive sense. They describe Jesus and his gospel as a stumbling block that people trip over. Now, that's in a good sense, but most of the times that the Bible uses this word scandal on is in a negative sense, in a bad sense. I'll give you an example uh, the story of Peter and Jesus uh, in, in the Gospels, where Jesus is preparing his disciples for uh, the fact that he's going to the cross and he's going to die. Now, again, uh, the the Though the Jews of that day, of this day, they were looking forward to the Messiah who would come and they had an expectation that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to come as a conquering king. That he was going to, you know, oust Rome from being an occupying force and that he was going to set up his rule and reign. And so this was the disciples' expectation. And Jesus is saying, look, it's, it's not going to work like that. I'm coming not as a conquering king. I will return as a conquering king, but I'm coming as a suffering king right now. To, to, to die for the sins of mankind, to give my life as a ransom for many. And so he's saying, look, I'm I'm about ready to be crucified. And what does Peter do? He pulls him aside, and he says, it's not going down that way. He rebukes Jesus, right? And, And what does Jesus say in response to Peter's rebuke? What does he say? He says, get behind me, Satan, right? Here's the verse. Jesus turned to Peter, and he said, get away from me, Satan. It's a bad day when Jesus calls you Satan, by the way. Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. He uses the word scandalon. He says, you're a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's point of view. Now, how was Peter a dangerous trap to Jesus? How was he a scandal on to Jesus? He gave him ungodly counsel. That's how. No, you're not going to die. You're, you're, you're going to Jerusalem to be the conquering king. That's, this is how it's going to go. So he, he's given him ungodly counsel. He's tempting Jesus to sin. Now, Jesus never sinned, but the Bible makes it clear that he was tempted in all points, just as we are tempted. And so this is why Jesus says to Peter, hey, you are a dangerous trap to me. This is a temptation that you're putting out there for me, that I shouldn't have to go to the cross. And so Jesus calls him on it. And Paul warned Timothy, in 2 Timothy, that this would be a huge problem in the last days. That in the last days, there would be many people who would, um, who would function in this way that would give ungodly counsel packaged as godly counsel. Uh, he also warned the Romans of the same thing. He said this. He said, watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith. What, what's the word he uses? Scandal on people who put stumbling blocks in people's way. He says, How do they do that? By teaching things contrary to what you've been taught. He says, Stay away from those people. And so th- that's an example, just one example, of how we put stumbling blocks in people's paths and how it happens in the body of Christ. Um, we have this happen in the body of Christ, where you know bad doctrine will be taught, a book will be published, or a blog will be written, and people they ha- completely undiscerning, they eat it up like a box of donuts at fat camp, and they're just like all about. Oh, that sounds so great, and it, and it's like no, listen, you got to exercise some discernment here. You got you have to take what what sounds good, and you gotta you gotta read it through the grid. Of God's word. That's got to be the grid through which you receive everything. And so we have to be discerning that there are people who put these scandalons out, and sometimes they're dressed as Christians. Sometimes you can be a scandal on somebody's life. A friend comes to you and they're they're lamenting something, and we give them worldly counsel, but we don't give them godly counsel. And in that regard, you are the one that's putting a stumbling block in their lives. It might make them feel good in the moment, it might make you feel good in the moment. To say, oh, he did that to you? Yes, fry him. Absolutely, you know. But it's putting a stumbling block in, in, in your brother's sister's lives. Just merely by the fact of receiving gossip sometimes. And participating in gossip can put a stumbling block in somebody's life. Why? Because gossip always goes to making our flesh feel better, but it does not lead us to the place of righteousness that God wants to lead us to. And it causes division rather than unity. And so we have to take a walk with that. We need to be very careful. Here's another way, because Jesus is saying, hey, woe to you. You know, he's saying, look, these stumbling blocks, they're bound to come, but woe to you if you're the one who brings the stumbling block. Here's another way that we can bring a stumbling block to, to one another's lives and be that person who actually is causing a person to stumble. Sometimes we do that in the exercise of our Christian liberty. Where in Christ, we have a freedom to do something, but when we exercise that freedom, it could cause somebody else to stumble. Paul dealt with this in in the book of 1 Corinthians. In the church of Corinth, it was, uh, you know, a, a great picture of Christianity over the ages. Because, you know, there they are, they're the first century church, they're just getting started, they're in this pagan culture, and they're trying to figure all this Christianity stuff out. How are we going to take the words of Christ and the commandments of God? And how are we going to live that out in this pagan culture? And one of the things that happened in Corinth was that you had a lot of worship of false gods. And people would engage in the practice of worshiping of idols where they would sacrifice meat to idols. And so they would take their meat and they would lay it down there before the idol and and worship and all. And the, the particular priest of whatever that false religion was... They could then, you know, what happens to the meat after you lay it down and, you know, worship that idol? Well, somebody's got to come and clean it all up. And so what would happen is it would sit there for a period of time, but it's still good. And the priest who had to tend tend this particular, you know, idol and, and all, he could take some of the meat for himself. But there was much too much for him to eat at all. So what would he do? Well, he'd go down to the Corinthian Meat Company and he'd say, hey man, you guys want to buy some some meat for cheap? And they would say yeah, and they would then take it and they would resell it. And in the reselling of it, they'd mark it down. And so if you lived in Corinth, you could go, hey, Corinthian Meat Company, he's got T-bones there. Oh my gosh, those are pricey. Yeah, but I got these ones over here that have been marked down. And and you could go, well, yeah, I'll do that. And a lot of Christians were doing that. But other Christians were getting weirded out about that. They were freaking out. They're like, wait a minute, that was sacrificed to an idol. And so Paul gets involved, and he basically says this. He basically says, look, obviously idols aren't real, and and we we can eat whatever we want if we eat it by faith. But here's what he goes on to say. I'll put this on the screen. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9, he says, but you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble see that's the key it's like hey you might have the freedom to do that but somebody might have a weaker conscience and you have to be sensitive to their weaker con- uh, conscience now we don't deal with meat sacrifice to idols today but one of the things that we deal with is is alcohol and uh, you know let me just ask you a question is it a sin to drink alcohol yes or no no it's not. Now, there are some exceptions to that. I mean, I'm a pastor. My interpretation of 1 Timothy 3, uh, you know, where it says that, that elders are not given to wine, is that pastors shouldn't drink. Now, there are those that disagree with me. There are friends that I have who pastor churches, and, and they have a different interpretation of 1 Timothy 3, and they think it's per- perfectly fine for a pastor to drink. I don't. And so, you know, here at Reliance Church, I tell my pastors, you know, you, if you're going to be an ordained pastor on staff here, if you're going to be an elder here... Um, you're not going to drink, and and if you want to drink, I would say two things to you. Number one, bye, um, <laughs> and number two, you, if it's that important to you, you might want to take a walk with that, you know. And so, so for me to drink, I think is sinful. For my pastors to drink, I think is sinful. I don't think it's I don't think it's right. And I could waste a lot—not waste, but I could spend a lot of time on that. Um, for for today, I don't have the time to. But I I just think that it, it doesn't. It doesn't add anything of benefit. But now, for many, the vast majority, having a drink isn't the problem. It's getting intoxicated. That's the problem. So, you know, if you're somebody who can't drink without getting intoxicated, then you might want to say, consider drinking is sinful for you. But for a lot of people, you know, hey, having a glass of wine with dinner, you know, having a beer at the end of the day, whatever it is, as long as you're not getting intoxicated, there's nothing sinful about that. But there are those Christians who if you exercise that liberty, you're going to stumble them. And so we need to be mindful of the fact that I, I might have this liberty in Christ, but if it caused somebody else to stumble, I need not to do that. And and Paul really emphasizes that the, the bottom line is, is love. It's love. Here's what he said to the Romans, Romans 14, 13. He says, Therefore, Let us stop passing judgment on one another. He's talking about religious liberties and so on, those whose faith is is weaker. He says, instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle, what's the word? Scandal on, that's what he uses. Don't put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. And again, what's the motive? The motive is love. Love. The motive is love. John said this, the Apostle John, 1 John 2.10. He said, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for scandalon. There's no cause for stumbling. So the Bible says scandalons come in many forms. And if you live on this earth, and if you can fog a mirror, Jesus says they're inevitable. But he says, woe to him through whom... They do come. I like the way David Guzik summarizes that uh, statement of Jesus. He says, he says this, people are going to take the bait, but woe to you if you offer the hook. People are going to trip up, but woe to you if you set the stumbling block in their way. Verse 3, Jesus continues. He says, take heed to yourselves if your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. So Jesus here, he's, he's still dealing with this essential issue of forgiveness, And notice where he says that forgiveness begins. Certainly it begins with the heart saying, I don't even want to cause somebody to have a situation where they need to forgive me. I don't want to cause somebody to stumble. But notice where he says this this forgiveness begins when the offense has happened. He says that it begins with you. He says, take heed to yourselves. Now, let's just be honest here, right? Taking heed to yourself. By the way, in the Greek, what's it mean? It means to turn your mind toward. It means to be attentive to. This is what Jesus means when he says take heed to. Turn your mind to yourself. Take heed to yourself. And what's the idea? It's a matter of hey, how am I going to respond to this in a way that honors Jesus? How am I going to respond to this in a way that is not sinful? The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's the idea here when Jesus says, take heed to yourselves. Now, let's be honest here. When someone sins against you, what are you more often likely to do? You don't take heed to yourself. Oh, how am I going to respond to this? How am I going to be a peacemaker in this? How am I going to pursue reconciliation in this? Usually what you will do, you, not me, I don't do this, but you might, usually what we do is we focus on them, right? We focus on the offender. We rehash it in our minds, right? It's just this thing that just goes over and over and over. It's like, oh, man, look what they did. And Jesus says, no, 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 you need to take heed to yourselves. You need to take heed to yourself. The great theologian Michael Jackson put it this way. He said, "I'm looking at the man in the mirror, and I'm asking him to change his ways. If you want to make the world a better place, you got to take a look at yourself and make a change. Sing it with me: Na 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 na. Not right. <laughs> and so, first of all, we take heed to ourselves." that we're not the one baiting the hook, that we're not the one setting the stumbling block, and secondly, we take heed to ourselves in how am I going to respond to this thing? And I want you to notice here in verse 3, Jesus describes this (coughs) three-step process in how we respond to offenses. He says it includes rebuke, he says it includes repentance, and he says that it includes forgiveness. Now, let's break this down. Rebuke, let's start there. Here's what Jesus said about rebuke. Um, Matthew 18, 15. I'll throw it on the screen. Jesus said, this is how rebuke is supposed to work. That if another believer sins against you, that you are to go privately, that's key, and you are to point out the offense. And if the other person listens, listens and confesses it, he says, you've won your brother back. And I want you to notice that there's a lot of key elements there. It starts with, (laughs) really the end of what he says, that you've won your brother back. See, a lot of us, we misunderstand rebuke. We think rebuke is, I'm gonna blow you out of the water. We think rebuke is, I'm taking you off at the knees, right? And it's not that, and you're supposed to go to them privately because it furthers the relationship. Why? Your motive is, I want to work this out with you. I want to win you back. So, so the attitude, the idea of rebuke is the motive that it starts with. Hey, I, I'm, we're not right. We, we have this scandal on here that, that, that's caused an offense, that's tripped up, that's led to sin. And it needs to be made right. And so, again, what do we struggle with? What is it that we struggle with? We struggle with just what rebuke really is and how it is we actually carry it out. A lot of times we don't go privately. A lot of times, instead of rebuking privately, we revile publicly, right? Get on social media. you never care. never believe what this guy did to me. Or we call our friends or, you know, we just unload. And Jesus says it's not supposed to work like that. You're not supposed to go unload on your friends and, and, you know, talk about the situation. And you go, well, wait a minute. You know, it's not like that. You know, Pastor Ted, I'll, I'll just tell you, I just need someone that I can vent to. <laughs> That's just another name for sin. Or you go, oh, wait a minute. You know, what if, what if what if I need some wise counsel? Can I go to somebody for wise counsel? You have it. Jesus gave it to you. Right here. He says... This is how you handle it. Matthew chapter 18, he says, you go to them privately. You have all the counsel that you need in the situation. And you're like, no, look, you're still not getting it, Pastor Chad. I just need somebody that I can be real with. Let me submit to you, if you've got that friend, that you go, hey, this is just somebody that I can be real with. No, that's somebody you can sin with is, is what you've got. Because if they were a true friend, they'd cut you off and go, why are you talking to me? That's unbiblical. (coughs) This is not healthy. And really, what I'm doing, if I'm that friend who's allowing you to be real with me, then really what I'm doing is I'm, I'm guilty of putting a scandal on in your life, a stumbling block for you by allowing you to behave in an unbiblical way. Some of you need to take a walk with this. Some of you, that's your price of admission right there. That's what God has to say to you today. Write it down. Take a walk with it this week. You are a friend or you're looking for a friend who you can be real with. And really what it is, is it's, it's hey, this is a scandal on. I'm being a scandal on for this so-called friend. They're being a scandal on to me. I need to go privately. I can't handle it that way. Why? Because God wants the relationship restored. Critically important to him. Again, what's Jesus say? Put Matthew 18, 15 back up if you could, or still there, there you go. He says, you've won that person back. That's the goal. That's the goal. You've won the person back. I love this anonymous quote. It says this, don't be so quick to expose everyone else's sin when God has been so merciful to cover yours. Ouch. Like I said, I know this is hard. It's certainly a lot easier to preach it than to live it, but this is the prescription, and it works. And so it starts with rebuke, and then the next step here now, it's repentance. If he repents, Jesus says, you forgive him. You're like, cool, if he doesn't repent, then I can give him both barrels. No, you still have to forgive. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But if he repents, he says you got to forgive him. Now, repent in the Greek, here's what it means. It means a change of heart resulting in a change of direction. Okay, in other words, when you take heed to yourself, when, when we're the one who's rebuked on the receiving end, man, I got to own my part in it, okay? And, and so if, you know, it's not a matter of going, oh, I'm sorry if you were offended. That's, that's not repentance. That's not taking ownership of it. If you're on the receiving end and somebody's rebuking you and they're handling it biblically, some humble pie is indicated. We got to take a, a humble walk with the Lord and say, Lord, you know, give me the strength here. Give me the faith here. We're going to talk about this in a minute. I need some faith to be able to respond appropriately here. And sometimes the appropriate response is to say, you know what, you're right. I am so sorry. Would you please forgive me for that? And, and so we need to own our part in it. And, and you know, we can't make excuses for it. Uh, we can't pridefully dig in. Then we need to own it and repent it and it, it, and and repent of it. And on the other end, taking heed to yourself, this, this, is, this is the key in repentance, taking heed to yourself, it means that you stand ready to forgive. If you're the one who's going rebuking somebody in private and you're saying, hey, look, this is what's gone down, again, that motive is the you've won your brother. You need to stand ready to forgive. You need to, to stand ready to say, All right. This is, this is what I will do. I will forgive, which, by the way, is the third step in the process, forgiveness. In other words, you don't withhold forgiveness until the person has been sufficiently punished as far as you're concerned. This really hurt me. You need to suffer for this. Some of y'all, that's, that, that's a stone you just got hit with right now. You're like, ouch, I'm guilty of that. See, the, the, the issue is, I like what Chuck Smith said. He said, if someone seems ripe for the, ripe for the judgment of God... Let God do it and get out of the way. He said, God doesn't need you as an instrument of his judgment, only as an instrument of his love. And, and this is so much the truth. We don't get to judge if their repentance is real. We don't get to judge uh, if, if their repentance is going to last. You're like, yeah, you say you're sorry, but you're going to do it again tomorrow. Well, guess what? This is what Jesus says. He says, look... If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day re- returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. It's not a one and done thing. You don't get to, to, to choose. If someone, you know, if you go to somebody and they say, I'm, uh, would you forgive me? We have to forgive. In fact, it's not just seven times in a day. Can you, can you imagine? I mean, we, we could read this and sometimes we do. It's like seven times in a day. And so we're like, that's six That's seven. That's eight. You're done. You know? No. Uh, Turn to Matthew 18. It's to the left there. A couple of books over to the left. We're going to verse 21 of Matthew 18. Peter comes to Jesus. This is in the middle of a whole section on forgiveness, by the way. Peter comes to Jesus. He says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Matthew 18, verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. This is hyperbole, by the way. It's an exaggeration to make a point. It's not like, you know... 449, four hundred you know, okay, you're done. You know, this is this is hyperbole. That that needs to be our ongoing attitude of forgiveness. He goes. Therefore, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. He's going to tell a story here, a parable, earthly story, heavenly meaning. It's like a certain king wanted to settle accounts with his servants, and when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. How much is ten thousand talents? Let's just say a modern equivalency is more than you could pay for in 10 lifetimes. Like, it's a lot of money. You will never in your life have that much money to repay. And this is how much this guy owed him. But as... And by the way, this is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The picture is is that you are guilty of sin. That your sins are so numerable, there's nothing you could do in 10 lifetimes to repay your sin before God. Right? And so he says, as he was not able to repay his master... Commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. And the servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. <clears throat> and then it, the master of that servant was moved with compassion. And he released him and he forgave him the debt. And this is a picture of the forgiveness that's available to you and me in Christ Jesus. That God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The picture is is that you are a sinner by nature and by choice. You are guilty as charged. There's nothing you can do to, to, to take care of that. But God, because he's a loving God, because he's a merciful God, because he's a compassionate God, he's made a way of forgiveness, to forgive you of your debt by Jesus Christ paying your debt. And so so this is that picture. He's moved with compassion. He forgives him. We have been forgiven so much. And just let that cook and settle. In fact, let that be that thing that's right before your eyes right now for the remainder of this message, that God has forgiven you of an immense amount. And so when you sit and cook in anger and bitterness and resentment at somebody else who has offended you, you're guilty of the same thing. But the servant went out, he's now been forgiven, and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, that's the equivalent of a day's wages, it's actually something that he theoretically could repay fairly easily, and he went and laid hands on him, and he took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe, and so his fellow servant fell down, does the same thing that he did with the king, begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I'll pay you all, and he would not. But he went and he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. And so when his fellow servants saw what he'd done, they were very grieved. And they came and they told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called him, he said to him, You... Wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay. All that was due to him, and now Jesus adds this, just in case there's any question in your mind, he says, so my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from, uh, if, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Wow. So critically important. And so we come back now to Luke chapter 17, And Jesus says, look, offenses are inevitable. You live in the world, you fog a mirror, you're going to experience it. You'll either offend somebody or somebody's going to offend you. It's going to be inevitable. You need to do everything that you can to make sure you're not the one doing the offending. And when offenses do come, you have to follow this three-step process of rebuke and repentance and forgiveness. And the goal is a complete restoration of the relationship. I like how David Guzik summarizes this. He says, love is the rule here. We obviously can't walk around keeping a record of every little offense committed against us. One aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering. And we need to be able to suffer long with the slights and petty offenses that come our way in daily living. We need to speak the truth in love. Love isn't going to other people about it. You'll never believe what so-and-so did. He says love isn't bottling it up inside you. Love is getting it straight with the person who sinned against you. Now, I know what you're thinking, and let's deal with it right now. The elephant in the room. What do you do when that's not possible? Sometimes reconcilia- reconciliation of the relationship isn't possible. Sometimes people who've sinned against you, they don't repent. Sometimes a relationship with the person is not a viable option. You know, you've been raped, uh, and the person is not repentant, or you don't, you've don't—that not been caught, or, you know, you're dealing with a molester, or... You know, I had one guy in counseling, his father had, had committed numerous wrongs against him. He had a tremendous anger and bitterness towards his father. And then his father went and died so that he couldn't even confront his father about this. And he was tormented by just the, the rage and the anger and the bitterness that he kept bottled up inside him. at a man who'd long since been buried. And, and the issue here in any of these situations is that even in those situations where you go, hey, there's not going to be a reconciliation of a relationship, of an ongoing relationship, there still can be a releasing to God. I can still take my angerness, my bitterness, my resentment, I can take all of that, and you know what I can choose? Lord, I'm going to forgive them, and I'm going to turn them over to you. Here's what Paul said to the Romans. He says, that if it's possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So critically important that we understand this. The alternative is you don't forgive, you keep that inside you, and, and you refuse. I'm, I'm going to stay bitter, I'm going to stay, stay angry, and, and I'm going to hold on to this offense. And it's been said when you do that, that it's the equivalent of taking poison to get even with your enemy. Because it will only destroy you from the inside out. So important that we understand this. Verse 5. This is key, pay attention. And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Now, I have two immediate responses to verse 5. My first response is, Oh, thank God, I'm not the only one who hears these commandments of Jesus and says, Holy moly, are you serious? There's no way I can do that. Right? This is a tall, Order. This is a very difficult pill to swallow, and these disciples, they recognize this, and so, you know, hey, increase our faith, <coughs> Lord, we're going to need some help with this. My second response to this is to say, well, why is it that they, they're asking for God to increase their faith? Don't you think the more appropriate prayer would be, I'm going to need some strength to do this, right? And so, so it's kind of curious. You go, why, why would they say increase our faith? And here's why. And, and, and if, you, if you hear nothing else that I'm going to say, hear this, write it down, take a walk with it. The disciples immediately recognized, listen, forgiveness isn't a strength issue. It's a faith issue. Forgiveness is not a strength issue. It is a faith issue. We need faith, first of all, to not react to our feelings, but rather to respond in faith. That's a whole message all in itself. And some of y'all maybe even need to take a walk with that. That you, you can't be governed or controlled by your feelings and by your emotions. They will train wreck you. And so we need faith, not to react to our feelings, but rather to say, this is what my flesh wants to do, this is what I'm feeling. The Bible says there's a way that's right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I'm going to take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and by faith I'm going to say, what do you say I'm supposed to do, Lord? And he says, this is the compass that points to true north, and you say, that does not feel like true north to me. This feels like true north to me, but you say, no, no, I'm going to walk by faith, not by sight. That's the first thing you need faith for. Secondly, you need faith that God is going to bring our offenders to true repentance. See, so often the thing that keeps me from exercising the steps that Jesus says here is I go, you know what? I don't think they're truly repentant. I don't think they really care. I don't think that deep down inside they, they really have the same mind that I have. And so, <laughs> messenger of Satan right there. Um, And so we need to have faith that God is going to bring our our, our offenders to repentance. Here's another reason we need faith. We need faith that God will heal every wrong. Right? Hey, this hurts so bad. This wound is so deep. I don't know if I can let go of this. Hey, have faith. God's going to heal that as we do it God's way. And finally, we need faith that God's going to protect us from future hurt and he's going to protect us from future harm. Let's be honest, a lot of reasons why we hold on to bitterness and anger and resentment and we refuse to forgive, it's a protection mechanism because I'm afraid, hey, listen, I made myself vulnerable to you once and you hurt me, and so therefore, I can't really forgive you because you might hurt me again. No, this is a faith issue. I got to say, Lord, you're going to protect me from future hurt and harm. You've called me to forgive. You've called me to restore the relationship. And so verse 6, the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, this is often misunderstood, and really it's a very simple thing that Jesus is saying. He's talking about the roots of a mulberry tree. And it was thought in this day and age that, that... the roots of a mulberry tree could stay rooted for 600 years. They were very deep and very strong, and it's really a picture of how the roots of bitterness and anger and resentment can go so deep and be so strongly entrenched in our lives. And Jesus said, you can have the smallest measure of faith. He talks about a mustard seed. It's not the smallest seed, but it was the, geographically, it was the smallest seed that their farmers would deal with. It's about a millimeter, maybe a couple of millimeters at the most. It's a tiny little seed. He says, you just have a little bit of faith. He says, you can say to that tree, be pulled up by the roots, and you can cast it into the sea. He's saying, faith can uproot the bitterness, the anger, and the resentment. And it's key, listen. He says, if you say to the tree, to be pulled up by the roots and cast into the sea. If you have that small small faith, you can say it. Here's the significance of that. <coughs> the word say in the Greek, and I'm wrapping it up with this, so pay close attention. The word say in the Greek means literally to speak out. It means to command. It means to call by name. It means to affirm over. And I'm not talking name it and claim it theology. Here's what I'm talking about. A lot of the times what we say to ourselves is we say, you hurt me too bad i can never forgive you and we say that to ourselves and and henry ford said this he says whatever you think whether he said whether you think you can or whether you think you can't you're right so what happens is we tell ourselves and we say to ourselves i can't forgive And if we say that, that's going to become this self-fulfilling prophecy to where I'm not going to follow through and forgive. Jesus says, you say to that tree, be pulled up and cast into the sea. What you are doing is you're choosing to exercise your faith. You're choosing to say to yourself, to speak the truth to yourself, not to speak a lie to yourself, but you're going to say, God's called me to forgive. This is what he's told me to do. And I know by the power of the Lord, if I exercise this, if I say I'm going to cast that bitterness and that anger and that resentment into the sea, I know that God will give me the strength to forgive. I want to close with this email that I received recently. (coughs) This is regarding a message I gave back in February of 2018. And in December, this man in our church, he sends me this letter. I'll just read an excerpt of it. He says, the 21st of December 2018 will mark the third anniversary of my mother's passing. It was a terrible time as my brother and I had a severe falling out. We were not speaking at all. And this was especially sad as we are both believing Christians. He said, granted, I probably came across Matthew 5, which was the scripture verse I had referenced in this message. I I probably came across Matthew 5 several times over the ensuing time, but it never struck me as when you talked on it. I was sitting in the last row of the church, but I felt like you were right in front of me, coaxing and encouraging me to reconcile with my brother. Your message hounded me for the entire day and the next day. You're welcome. And I composed... (laughs) A letter of reconciliation to my brother, and I mailed it to him on February 7th. He called me two weeks later in tears to express his thanks for the letter and the chance to reconcile with me. He said, I finally have my brother back. He says, well, my brother and I have patched things up, and we've never been closer. He goes on to say that tragically, after the reconciliation of their relationship, his brother contracted cancer and was diagnosed Uh, and given a prognosis of only 6 to 12 months to live. And he goes on to talk about how his brother is handling that with tremendous faith and tremendous courage and, you know, giving to them the strength that they need and and really a, a mention of the gratitude of having a reconciled relationship for this season that he's going through. He says, I want you to know that the Lord placed me in that seat, in that church, on that day to hear that message. Had many things not fallen into place precisely, I may not have heard your message. And I may still have been stupidly floundering in my animosity with my brother. God's placed you here today in that seat, at that time, at this time, to hear this message. And I want to tell you, forgiveness, reconciliation is the path of Christ.